Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here with Benny Lewis for a new episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Barbara Oakley, creator of the online course, How to Learn, author of many books, including A Mind for Numbers and American Professor. If you enjoy the podcast, you can join us at languagehacking.com slash Patreon, where you'll get access to exclusive questions and other bonus content. Some of the Patreon questions we asked Dr. Oakley are, Motivation around learning and how to make progress even when you feel bad at something. Dr. Oakley's three survival language tools. The advice she would have given herself when she was starting out with language learning. How to get back into a language you stopped learning. How Dr. Oakley would start learning a new language today. And Dr. Oakley asks Benny what his advice is for when a teacher assigns you things that just don't make sense for you personally. Once again, you can find these bonus questions and extra content over at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. In this episode, you'll hear about how Dr. Oakley got into learning how to learn, joining the military to learn a new language at the Defense Language Institute, unlearning the inner narratives around not being able to do something, using the speak from day one approach, how Dr. Oakley's philosophies around language learning influenced her learning in other fields, working as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers, teaching in China, being an army captain in Germany, working as a radio operator at the South Pole Station, and how these things shaped Dr. Oakley's perspectives, how teaching makes you a better learner through retrieval practice, the story behind the Moog, learning how to learn, and tricks for encouraging your kids to love learning. We hope you enjoy this podcast, and let's get into our conversation with Dr. Oakley. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 117. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I am so excited for our guest today. Barbara Oakley is uh, very well known for her huge MOOC of learning how to learn. A lot of you guys have actually found me uh, through that course that she gave. And uh, she's published multiple books on learning how to learn, on Mind for Numbers, MindShift. Uh, she's an American professor of engineering, and uh, she's done a host of things in her life. Very interesting person to talk to about the experience of learning in general. And that's why we wanted to have her on the podcast. So, Barbara, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, well, it's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, you neglected to say I actually I'm simulating being a professor of engineering. So, uh, you know, but but people seem to be, you know, to take be taken in. So I can't complain. <laughs> that's that's what life is all about. Fake it till you make it is what I always say. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from your perspective. How did your career uh, move towards this concept of improving learning itself? Because it's such an interesting thing to talk about because in like learning is such a big part of education, but I never learned how to learn in school, you know? So how, how did this interest come about for you? Oh, it was completely by accident. Um, so I always try to follow interesting questions. So I, my sister uh, was uh, a, shall we say, a troubled individual. And so I, I had always wondered how could she um, sort of like be honest to your face, but then do things that were really like unpleasant for my parents. And, and she was a very duplicitous person. And I was like, how can somebody be like that? Um, and you can't go and Google up mean people, you know, because it's like that's not in the scientific directory. Um, but I, I, I really wanted to try to understand how a person could not be a psychopath, but just kind of a mean person. Um, and so I actually sat there for six years working on what turned into the book um, Evil Genes. It has a tongue-in-cheek title, Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, Enron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. And that allowed me to take a deep dive from an um, sort of a high-level academic perspective into what's going on in the fields of psychology, in genetics, in 
uh, cognitive psychology and neuroscience and and look at all of these fields with a kind of a outsider's perspective but still from a very high academic level because I was a professor of engineering. And you're wondering, what the heck does this have to do with learning how to learn? So uh, ultimately, I, I published the book and it gave me a great deal of insight, particularly into cognitive processes, what we know of them, of the pitfalls and the gaps within fields and between fields. Uh, so, for example, the concept of malignant narcissism was a big one in psychology, but there was absolutely zero scientific foundation. Uh, no scientific papers published on this. So, so I was able to get a grip on what was going on in these fields and feel confident that there were big gaps. And so then later, when one of my students once asked me, you know, how did you go from a person who absolutely hated math and science to becoming a professor of engineering? How, how did you do that? Um, I thought about it and I thought, you know, I have a lot of insight that I could add into the idea of how, how do you learn and change your brain effectively just because I've done all this background research into, um, into these seemingly disparate fields like cognitive psychology and neuroscience and so forth. And, and more than that, I'd also along the way explored the concept of pathologies of altruism. In other words, well-meaning uh, perspectives that actually can do harm. And it turns out that that's really quite relevant to the field of education as well. So my student asked me, how'd you change your brain to become successful in learning in math and science? I could bring in all this information in a digestible way, probably more digestible than what I have just spent all this time uh, relating to you. And, uh, and people seem to really like the approach. But at the same time, uh, with my colleague, Terence Sanowski, uh, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute, we sort of came alive with a, uh, a double whammy in that we also had the MOOC the massive open online course, Learning How to Learn, which was based on the book, A Mind for Numbers, which was the book I wrote to answer that student's question. And what I really found was that students, um, they may not read books, but they will watch videos and you make really good ones and people will love to watch them. And so my career as an educator was all to my surprise, launched. So it sounds like you have a really diverse background and a lot of interdisciplinary studies. And I'm curious how language fits into this whole thing for you and how that has evolved. So because I hated math and science when I was growing up, and I was only, I was 26 years old and well, what happened was I enlisted in the army right out of high school and I thought, well, gosh, I just can't do anything technical because I'm, I don't have the math gene. But I was very interested in sort of trying to get a better handle on reality, which is kind of sounds silly, but that's actually what I was trying to do. And I thought, if I learn a different language, that will give me a different perspective than the, my native language. And it, that can help me to kind of home in on what reality is a little bit better. And, and I know that's all kind of naive and all this kind of stuff, but that's really what I was thinking. So I wanted to learn another language, even graduating from high school. And I found out, I, I mean, I couldn't afford to go to college. So, um, I found out the, the military had a good language program and they'd pay me to learn another language. So I enlisted uh, in the army and spent 15 months or so at the Defense Language Institute. And that, as it turns out, is one of the best language learning institutions in the world. Uh, it's, it's superb. And what they taught me about how to learn effectively um, 
has served me in good stead ever since. And, and I've really discovered that learning language um, helps you to learn all sorts of other things as well. And including when I was 26 and got out of the military uh, in my later 20s, I decided to start trying to see if I could learn in math and science. And I use the same language learning techniques. And of course, that's why I am now a distinguished professor of engineering. And I'm the real deal. I publish in top journals and I'm a fellow of top societies. So it really works. But the, the foundation that this all grew from was learning language. I'd like to go back to something that you brought up in one of your earlier answers, and it's that you learned a language at the Defense Language Institute. And this is a bit of a two-part question. So the first is, I know there's a lot of people more like interested in knowing a bit about that program and how learning as a part of the Defense Language Institute works. And then you had mentioned that some of what you had done as a part of that program, you took with you after and was you were able to apply it to other things in your life. So what were some of those learning tactics that had such an impact on you? I think one thing we should do is step back for a moment. And people would sometimes say, you are so good with languages. And the reality is that I was not good with languages. And I say that because I've known people, and I'm, I know you all have known people who have some kind of, there, there is a genetic predisposition for you know, different aspects of language learning, being able to acquire the, the proper accent more quickly, uh, being able to remember words uh, with ease and so forth. Some people can do that, and they can learn like, five times faster than I, and they can speak more fluently than I. That doesn't matter. All I wanted to do was just to be able to learn in the way that I could best learn. So the only reason I was considered such a good language speaker was because I, I practiced a lot. And so what might take me five hours to learn uh, a very f easy and natural language learner maybe can learn in a half an hour or even less. And interestingly, some research has shown that these very quick language learners actually put less mental effort into their learning than we normal people put into our learning. But that's okay. So the, the thing is, with plenty of practice, it just actually, the more you practice, the more you start enjoying that practice and, and really kind of, um, and you find that in some ways, even with those very fluent language learners, you're actually learning it more deeply uh, because of that practice. So, uh, so the, the real, the bottom line to me is no matter how good or bad you are, if you put some time in for practice, that's going to make just an enormous difference in your long-term success with, with the language. And I really like how Benny has approached language learning in, in the idea of um, just dive in and speak with people. Because that, I, I, I can't really put my finger on exactly what's going on neuroscientifically. But you know, is it embarrassment? You know, is it uh, is it the fact that you're making, I, I mean, there is really good evidence that if you make eye contact with someone uh, and they are responding to you, you get a lot of pleasure from that. It actually gives, releases this dopamine and so forth. So I think um, Benny's approach is just a great one of try to, you know, everybody's got different approaches. Yes, we we some of us do like to stick to our flashcards and and really get the grammar down and all that kind of stuff. But if you can, uh, the more you can kind of inch towards Benny's approach of also speaking with people. But I, I've got a question for you, Benny. Here's my challenge. So I, you know, I, I'm trying to keep up on my Russian and. 
uh, also learn some Spanish because our new granddaughter is going to be bilingual. Her father's Chilean and our son-in-law is Chilean. Um, but um, I, I, I want to make appointments with uh, iTalkI and talk with people. But my challenge is that then they will say, you know, you should just memorize all the words that we talked about today and make sure you get that and practice with the verb conjugations on the future. And so and so by the time I get done with a nice half an hour or 45 minute conversation, they've just given me, you know, four or five hours of practice assignment to do that week. And I can't do that because I just don't have it in my schedule, you know. Uh, so what do I do? Well, my answer to that is when it comes to teachers, if a teacher is assigning me things that are just not practical um, or if I don't mesh with their teaching style, I am very ruthless in just saying that teacher is, is wasting my time and I will cancel with that teacher and I'll find somebody else. Because if a teacher is assigning me a lot of homework, like I, I'm like you, I don't really have the time to set aside for homework that a teacher is assigning for me. I will try to carve the time to do my own language studies, but my learning technique is that I just don't jive well with somebody else assigning me a lot of things to do. So if I find I've got a teacher who is expecting a lot of homework from me, then I'm not, I'm just not going to see that teacher anymore. And this, this is kind of like my part of my philosophy is I will test things out and I will be very ruthless in cutting out the weeds because this is uh, this well-intentioned teacher may well be the perfect teacher for somebody else, but they aren't, they aren't for me. So cancel, find another teacher and I'll try to communicate as well as I can that like I can't really take on homework assignments. So you want a teacher that's giving you the best bang for your buck for the half hour or the hour that you're with them. And if your time is limited elsewhere, then unfortunately that means um, that they are relying too much on you to have a lot of free time. So they are not a good teacher for you. Very simple. Uh, to, to expand on uh, what you're getting into there, I, I am curious to hear how your um, philosophy with learning languages has influenced other things because I, I kind of came from the reverse. I came from being pretty naturally adept at mathematics and science and then struggling to get into languages. Whereas uh, for you, the languages kind of inspired you to then think, well, maybe I am good at all of these technical subjects. How did you breach that gap from getting then from languages to using what you've learned in ac uh, acquiring languages to help you with other skills in life? A big motivator for me was that when I went to get out of the army at age 26, I had a bachelor's degree in Slavic languages and literature and nothing else. And all of my colleagues, they were West Point engineers and they were easily finding jobs. So a, a big push for me was, hey, do you wanna get some kind of interesting career? Um, because language is a, fa it's a fantastic paired with something else, you know, that, that is, it can be good if it's a, if it's a, a valued language within your cultural system, it can be good to just concentrate on a language, but it's often really good to have your language coupled with, you know, with something, um, something else that is your expertise. So I could clearly see that my colleagues uh, with a technical expertise were getting jobs just as easy as can be. So, you know, it wasn't like I had this, oh, I am going to go off and I'm going to study engineering because I just love it. It's so beautiful. It's it's technical and it's just me, you know, that wasn't it. It was like, I want to get a job. I want to get a decent job. Um, and there was a little bit of a challenge. It was like, you know, there couldn't be anything possibly in this earth that could be more alien to my mindset than engineering, you know, because I was like, I'm an I'm artistic. I'm a literature sort. I'm, you know, I, I don't do that numbers kind of thing. And so 
then it became almost like, wow, it's a backhanded challenge for me. But what was it about that language study that I was able to bring over to help me be successful? Now, remember, when I made that leap, it was because I felt like I was being pushed, not because I wanted to jump. Um, And so I was like, can I be successful? I don't know if I can be successful. But what I had going for me was like learning verb conjugations. How do, you, how do you learn verb conjugations? I mean, really learn, not just sort of, oh, yeah, you memorized how to do it. You do interleave practice in a great variety of situations. So, so you're using what is now known as one of the best concepts in all of learning, which is retrieval practice coupled with spaced repetition and interleaving. <laughs> That that's it in a nutshell. So that's what you do when you're language learning. You're whether you're learning it in school or you're trying to just learn it on the fly, talking with others and picking it up from books and and so forth. You are you're remembering words. You're you're using patterns that you know with the conjugation of verbs. You know with the manipulation of adjectives and and so forth so you're you're use you're learning patterns and you're having to kind of mix them all up on the fly so you don't know when what's going to come where that's a lot like problem solving in engineering you you've got a pattern you don't you know what the pattern is you don't know how it's exactly going to appear in a problem that you're posed with, you know, but hey, you've got this certain distribution. Is it going to be um, the geometric, the binomial, the negative binomial? Are you, which, which distribution do you pick? You know, it's like which verb conjugation do you pick? And then how do you apply it within that particular problem? That is, how do you say it in a sentence in Spanish? Um, so, I mean, fundamentally, Many of the ideas between good language learning and good learning in the technical fields are quite similar. If you enjoy the Language Hacking Podcast, then you will absolutely love our Patreon. Joining us on Patreon gets you access to extended episodes with bonus questions and behind-the-scenes conversations with our guests, as well as loads of other content. You can ask Benny... Elizabeth and I, any questions you want answered, and we'll record them in exclusive monthly episodes. You get access to my personal study templates so that you'll have a focused and structured way to learn. There's a new template every month, and you will get up to 50% off any of the Fluent in Three Months courses. So you can learn more over at patreon.com slash language hacking, and we hope to see you there. You had mentioned that part of the reason you think Benny's speak from day one method is so effective is because embarrassment factors into it a little bit, which kind of makes me think of something that a previous mentor of mine had said, where some of the biggest motivators are fear, embarrassment, and uh, frustration to get us to learn and really progress to that next level. But those can all be quite negative emotions and there's often feelings of being bad at something tied to those things, which it can also like work in reverse and you're not motivated because you feel bad at things. So what are some of the things in your experience that have been effective motivators for things like learning languages or working on skills that you may feel bad at? So I I think one thing to emphasize is that, um, Embarrassment and so forth is not everything that goes on in your initial efforts at learning a language. Yes, it's a little bit of a part of it, but it's not, um, I mean, much, much more important to my mind is the fact there's great research showing that when you speak with another person and you know that they're looking you in the eye and they're responding to you, you know, not just, you know, some video that's like a robot or something, but there's actual interaction that they have acknowledged your presence. You get this dopamine hit. 
of happiness. So it's, it may be tiny, but it's there. And so this is why talking with others in another language can actually just be a, a real hoot and an upbeat thing. So Benny's approach is a really good one because it, it takes advantage right from the get-go of this back and forth eye gaze um, dopamine facilitation that, you know, real interactions with others can give. But more than that, I think it's important to realize that when you're learning, stress is good. So there's something called, a, um, it's an inverted U, like a, an arc uh, of stress. And if you're at the, the low end of the stress curve, you don't have much stress at all. Well, it's super boring. If you have too much stress, you know, incoming, uh, it, it that's hard to concentrate as well. But a little bit, you know, having that moderate amount of stress actually sort of tunes up your cortisol levels. It really gets your system so you're paying attention better and you learn better. So a little stress in learning actually helps you learn. It 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 makes me laugh. Who was it? The the Osher Center, one of these uh, for older people says, no more tests. And I'm like, well, no more learning either, because actually tests are one of the best methods for helping you learn. And it's that little bit of stress that helps with that. But as you're speaking with others, that that little bit of stress as you're interacting with people helps make you a little sharper and helps you learn that material more easily, even as you also get that enjoyment of looking in another person's eyes and uh, and learning and getting that reaction, whether it's horror at, at your pronunciation of a, a particular word or, you know, just laughter. It, it's it's still all good. Absolutely agree with that. And one other thing that I like about your story that uh, is the use of languages in your life, because that, that for me, like I get value out of, the benefits I get from speaking a language rather than the passion of just learning the language for its own sake. And you've worked as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers. You've taught in China. You become an army captain in Germany. You've worked as a radio operator at the South Pole in the Antarctic. So I'm curious out of like, how have all these places and moving from one completely different side of the planet to the other and doing so through uh, multiple different languages, have they shaped your way of seeing life in the world? Well, one thing I would really like to share with, you know, with everyone here is when you learn a language, keep practicing it. Don't let it go because I made the mistake of letting languages go. And um, and that it, you can work so hard and it really doesn't take much each each day or a little bit each week to just keep that language up. And that's one thing I regret is not keeping languages up. Um, yes, I can still swear very well in Russian and get around quite nicely uh, when necessary. Thank you very much. Um, but uh, it's one thing that I am really happy about is that going around the world, working in these different places, having these different jobs and so forth gives me, um, I'm a much, much better teacher as a consequence. And I'm a much better colleague as a consequence. Some, I mean, it's even little tiny things. Like I'll listen to someone trying to explain something, you know, to a non-native speaker of English. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, if I was a non-native speaker of English, I would be lost at your explanation. And even at how you're trying to phrase things in English. And you just, you pick up a lot when you're learning foreign languages because you you know, in some sense, you're the fool. Um, I, I still remember there's a cognitive lag when you are speaking a, your, a, a, a language that is not your native language. So you have, no matter how, you had to be really pretty quick. And that's rather rare. Um, mostly there's a little bit, even if you 
are thinking in that second language, you're thinking a little bit more slowly. If you're reading in that second language, you're reading a little bit more slowly. And there can be a tendency on the part of the native speaker of that language to think that you're kind of adult, you know, you're really the village idiot because you're just a little slower. Maybe you're a lot slower. And you don't really realize how easy it is to fall into that, um, that mindset of, well, you know, they're a little slower and it has nothing to do with their actual intelligence. It's just that their cognitive processing load on that with that additional languages. And so, especially if you're a teacher or you work with people from many parts of the world, Gosh, it's just so helpful. It doesn't matter what other language you might have learned. You're going to be able to work with and and be a nicer colleague and teacher just because of those experiences that you yourself have had of um, of not being perceived as the brightest bulb in the world. So speaking of teaching, uh, you have a lot of experience as an educator, and I've found from personal experience that one of the best ways for me to really check to make sure that I understand something or to really make a piece of knowledge my own is by teaching it. So have you found that teaching has made you a better learner and in what ways? Oh, I think so. Um, And pretty much, I think most teachers have this experience. and. If you really want to get down to it, what what teaching does is it forces you to retrieve key ideas. So it's retrieval practice and to share them with others. So you have to kind of encapsulate and find ways to simply convey the ideas you're trying to convey. So teaching is a, a marvelous tool that just reiterates why retrieval practice, that is, pulling something from your own memory is good but it's also it's it's a really not it's a lot more fun than just sitting there staring at a bunch of flashcards pulling things from memory and also you can never predict what the questions are going to be from your students and those will also help keep you on your toes so the learning how to learn MOOC has become one of the most successful online courses in the, in the history of the internet, essentially. And I'm really curious to hear the story behind that. Like what, how did you decide you were going to put this course online? Cause you said initially that video was something that uh, you knew where it was going to be effective in getting a message across. So why not just upload it to YouTube? Like what, what made you decide you were going to do this massive online course and why do you think, uh, what, like, what, what do you think was the reasons that it became as successful as it did? Well, if you think about it, you can write a book and you can load it online and no one will ever really look at it. And I don't care how good it is. So I, I guess I come from a history of publishing, you know, over many years. So my bias when it comes to online learning is a bias that's shaped by the world of book publishing. You don't just put your stuff out there because if you do, it's you can put a lot of work into it and it's going to be ignored. So I, I, I had volunteered for five years in an inner urban school district, Pontiac, and I'd seen there that the kids were incredible. They were marvelous kids. The system, on the other hand, was, uh, let's just say it was not the best. And what I wanted to do was to help create materials that could help these kids learn effectively, because they were not going to hear it from their teachers or from the school system or anything like that. If I wrote a book, and I did, I wrote, you know, A Mind for Numbers, it would go out, but it would really only capture a t- the tiniest portion of people who were, you know, uh, already in a position where they could buy a book, where they could even hear about it and so forth. But I thought, wow, you know, if just around that time, 
massive open online courses were coming out. And I thought, wow, you know, if we created videos about this, it would be, we could really convey these ideas in a very easy to understand way. And I had met Terry Sinowski. I'd given a presentation on pathological altruism for the proceedings of the National Academy or for the National Academy of Sciences. And so I mentioned to Terry that he wrote the foreword for the book, uh, that maybe we should do a, a, a massive open online course. And he was like, okay, that'll be easy. We'll just go to University of California, San Diego, go because I have a joint appointment there and we'll teach the course. <laughs> Well, it was not easy because UC San Diego was like, we'll do a, a course with you, Terry, but who the heck is she? She's not from our university. She's, you know, some Midwestern, you know, university and it's not us. And um, so anyway, Terry worked his magic and spoke with the um, one of the founders of Coursera, Taffney Collar. And next thing you know, I got this um, email and uh, it opened things up for me and uh, get started on the course. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? <laughs> I felt like, you know, they, they always say, uh, what does the dog do when the dog catches the car after running after it? I felt like the dog that had caught the car. So I thought, well, I think I really want to use a green screen approach. In other words, you know, you um, can put any background you want if you film in front of a green screen. And I didn't realize that that was considered more technical. And so, I, you know, I was like, I, I didn't know. And I didn't know anything about, you know, video or anything like that. And so I didn't know it was supposed to be more difficult. And I uh, spent about nine months just working my backside off. Terry filmed his portions at the Salk Institute. Um, I did almost all the editing for the course and, uh, you know, and I just made it to make me happy. And I remember my husband uh, and looking at me and we we're looking at each other because he was the man behind the camera and kind of making it all unfold, you know, from that perspective. And we, we just looked at each other and we're like, why are we even doing this? You know, it was like nine months of crazy 14 hour days uh, editing video and filming and so forth. It, we didn't even know if anybody was ever going to watch it. So it's, I'm still just shocked that it, it, it became so popular, but it was really a labor of love. It was all made. Um, well, just the one little aside I have to give. So the worst professor I ever had, he was, absolutely horrible and he was teaching grad school he's doing a der derivative and he he boxed himself into a corner made huge mistakes and he was trying to figure out what was going on and so us the, the students in the front of the classroom were like started talking about a you know a television show well, of course, for me, I'm a very serious student. I never watched television, but these um, students in the front were talking about their television show, and the professor whirls around and he puts his crosses his arms and he goes, "I never watch television." And I thought, "Oh gosh, I got to start watching television," you know, because I don't want to turn out like that. So about you know, was it maybe? 20, 15, 20 years later, I had, I'd been watching a little bit of television all the way along. And that I had subconsciously shaped my ability to see what attracts attention and how do you hold attention? And now I understand from the neuroscience of movie making, there's some fantastic insights uh, from movie and neuroscience of movie making that haven't been applied before in uh, in education that I'm bringing out with this next MOOC teaching online. Um, that you know, there's there there's lots of little tricks that you use to keep people's attention, and so uh, so anyway, I I kind of used a lot of those tricks I'd subconsciously picked up over the years. 
Speaking of tricks, um, I'm a parent. And one of the things that I constantly worry about is making sure my kids have a passion for learning the same way that I do, because, you know, it could go either way. There are people who just have no interest in it. And then there's people who are a bit more curious and are. So are there any tricks for encouraging my kids to develop a love of learning? I'm sure that there's a zillion things that I did over the years that were subconscious. So, you know, it's hard to convey them because I probably just did them unthinkingly. But when I look back at videos of me with the kids, I'm like, oh, I look so young, man. But here was what I was doing. Oh, this is so exciting. Look at this. And I'd be like over the top excited about whatever or whatever it was. And you could see the kids like they're getting excited too. And so I think your passion and enthusiasm is probably the number one thing. But there's there's another thing though, and um Sometimes I think modern educators get all lost in the idea that learning always has to be fun. And the reality is it doesn't. I mean, if you're learning to ride a bicycle, you fall off, you get hurt. It, there's stuff you do, you know, you learn to play a musical instrument. It's not all happy beans. There's to, to learn something, especially that is a little bit demanding. Um, so what I did um, was there, there's good evidence that, you know, little boys and little girls are, they have equivalent abilities in math and science, but their verbal abilities are often just a little on average more advanced than little boys. So what does this really mean? It means a little boy could look within himself and say, you know, I'm better at analytical things than I am at verbal things. Because on average, he probably is. Now, he's got the same analytical skills as a little girl, but he's thinking inside, I'm better at math, sorts of things. A little girl, on the other hand, even though she's got exactly the same abilities as a little boy in math and science, she's thinking, you know, I'm really good verbally. Because she probably is, on average, a little better verbally. So so what does this mean? Even though little boys and little girls have the same analytical capabilities, on average, when we tell kids, follow your passion, we are inadvertently saying, um, you know, passions develop about what you're good at. So we're inadvertently saying, little girls, you know, do something verbal. Little boys, go do something analytical because inside each one is thinking that's what they're best at, even though little boys and little girls have the same on average capabilities in math and science. So uh, uh, as a mom of two daughters, uh, I really wanted to ensure that my kids had all career doors open for them. Because uh, if you have math skills along with verbal skills, all doors are open. If you only have verbal, you've just closed off a lot of really interesting careers. So I want to make sure they had good math as well as good verbal. So I, I put them in Kumon mathematics for like 10 years, starting from when they were three, but you can start your kid at any age. And uh, there's a, another really good program called Smartic uh, that's an online program. Um, but what this does is it, uh, it gives them 20 minutes of additional practice with math. And math is very much like a language. Um, if you get plenty of practice while you're growing up, you're going to be able to speak that language. So sure enough, my girls, uh, are, my older daughter was uh, pathetic at math. I mean, she was so gifted verbally that it was like, math was not even in the picture. She could, at the drop of a hat, she can recite, even now, years later, you know, 20 pages of poetry, just boom. But math? So, uh, I mean, it was like, there are two bunnies, two bunnies, and then two more bunnies come. And uh, But anyway, um, I reminded her of that when she was studying math in 
college. And uh, but it was a struggle for her. But she got that extra math practice. And now she's uh, she did her medical school residency at Stanford, for example. Our younger daughter, who is the artist and a really good artist, uh, got her bachelor's degree in studio art and uh, and then decided to go back and get her master's in statistics. And, you know, and she could do that because she had that extra math practice that helped. And boy, I tell you, it was 10 years of pushing a rope because 20 minutes a day with that kid, she just every day was just, I don't want to do it, you know? And um, so, you know, part of encouraging your kids to to learn is like, there's tiger moms and like, they want their kids to learn, you know, uh, tennis and how to play a musical instrument and do this and that and the other. I was like a tiger mom with one paw. I, I said, I am going to uh, insist on only one thing. And that is they do a little extra math practice each day. And that's, that's what I did. Um, and I introduced them to everything else, you know, basketball camp and you know mandolin practice or whatever they wanted most of it they just didn't stick with but this one thing I was like they're gonna stick with so encouraging is a great thing way to go about but also not being afraid to if there's something one thing you you think is really important you know don't be afraid to kind of insist on small bits of that that was actually going to be my next question because I put my son in cumin and it was a battle. Every time I wanted him to do his cumin work, it was a huge battle. And it's like, where do you draw the line between like insisting and pushing them and then saying, okay, this isn't working. This is not your thing. Like we need to let it go. Yeah. No, for me, it was like, no, I'm, I can see what's ahead 10 years uh, from now and you cannot. So it doesn't matter what you feel about this uh it's it, we're talking something small it's my personal thing as your mom i realize that but you know i'm a mom i'm your mom and there's this is just my rules in my in my house uh and also it's you know it developed a habit about how to how to do things and so forth so yeah, was it 10 years of of often frustration and so forth? But boy, yeah, it was. But it, the end was just marvelous because it turned out that she had picked up a lot over the, even though during the time she would swear that it was not something that she liked or wanted to do or whatever foist on anyone else. But now she's really great. And you know what? They give me a bad time about, they're like, so why didn't you also do this with a musical instrument? You know, so you can't win for losing. Uh, but you you can see what's lying ahead for them. And this can make a huge difference. It, it gives them a skill that is in, in virtually every possible way like at the skill of having a second language. Yeah, you definitely, you don't have to convince me of the usefulness of mathematics. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that like, uh, cause I've been a mathematics teacher and I use it in my day to day life in uh, interesting ways. So, um, you definitely don't have to uh, sell me on that. Um, you were saying earlier that there's, um, uh, you've been working on another MOOC about teaching, and I'd be very curious to hear what are the other projects that you're working on, and could you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, sure. So I'm making a specialization for Coursera, which is one of the top platforms. I think it's the top um, online platform featuring university um, courses. And so I've done... So a specialization means a kind of a clump of courses. So in our case, it's three courses. Uh, the first, uh, so 
I wrote with with my colleagues, Beth Rogowski and Terry Sanowski, the book Uncommon Sense Teaching. And this these three MOOCs are more or less based on that book. But, you know, it isn't like they just parrot what's in the book. There's so much uh, meteor approach. You can bring things to life in a real life course that you simply cannot in a book because it can, you can have things move and it's, if we have these fantastic animations. So the first two are, um, courses are done. Um, they teach about things like, um, what's the difference between the declarative hippocampal system and the procedural basal ganglia system? And, and I know you're going, oh, well, that's so super boring. Uh, but it actually has a tremendous influence on how well you can learn a foreign language. Uh, um, and the difference is most of our memorization, like if you're memorizing verb lists, it, and you're retrieving them, it's declarative sets of facts. So uh, by declarative, that means it's it's kind of through the hippocampus and it, it gets placed in, you know, in memory and you can pull it back out of memory. Um, and I'm jumping over all sorts of things, but there's wonderful animations that you would understand this far better in the in the course. But procedural learning, is when you know something so well that you don't even understand how you know it and you can't explain how you do it and you can do it without even thinking about it. That's how we speak foreign languages. It's also how we hit a baseball. Uh, it's how we solve a Rubik's Cube. It's how we get those intuitive flashes when we're solving equations. So um, understanding these two different systems can help you be a better language learner and also help you better understand how learning takes place in general. But the last MOOC, the one I'm working on now, is um, it's like the piece de resistance. It's just the... Uh, it, it puts everything together in terms of schemas, that is, frameworks of long-term memory and how that shapes our identity and how we can start shifting our identity. So if you're looking to shift yourself as a language learner, you can start with that MOOC and, or that course, and that would really help you to get a much better handle on how to start shifting yourself. Interestingly, we feature Audrey Lawrence, who is severely dyslexic. Uh, she was an interior designer and was absolutely convinced she couldn't learn anything new, uh, um, in particular because she was severely dyslexic. And she took the course learning how to learn. And do you know that she is now a the star and producer of her own television show on PBS? And she came out and filmed me with setting up the camera, putting everything all together. It's just amazing how you can change if you change you know, gradually, step by step, your identity. One of the questions that we always ask our guests, given that this is the Language Hacking Podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Well, I guess listening to Benny. I I read Benny's um, emails, and when I have the chance, I really like to listen because sometimes you just need to have inspiration to keep yourself going. And um, what was it? Uh, I think it was Zig Ziglar, the famous salesman, who said something like, you know, you have to take a shower every day because you get dirty and you have to, you, you need something, you know, your motivation can wash away as well. And so you need to kind of do something to also help refresh your motivation and do that on a daily basis. So I think listening to, to Benny and, and reading his, 
really upbeat and um, you know insightful uh, emails just helps keep me fresh and and you know and you can do it you can keep doing it. even if it's only five minutes a day you 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 don't have to be some brilliant perfect language learner and uh, I, so that's my definition of language hacking. I really appreciate that. Very kind of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So thank you once again. This has been an absolutely fascinating chat. Uh, We'll let you know when it's going live. I'm catching up. I've been traveling nonstop for the last month or so. So I'm recording a bunch of episodes in the next few days. So we'll let you know when this is going live, probably within the next month or two. And um, yeah, as always, feel free to reach out to me if you uh, want to partner on anything you know i love working with you oh i sure love uh, i love everything you do so um i will keep that in mind i'm working on the next specialization which relates to critical thinking so um but uh we uh all i can say is i'm it's going to be a pleasure to um tout this recording and i just i love your work excellent stuff Thank you once again. And to everybody listening, I wish you all a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. All right. So at the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we took away from our conversation with our guest. And this is something that you can implement into your own learning and try out and see how it works for you. So Benny, what was your biggest takeaway with our conversation? There were loads of great takeaways, but one that I really appreciated that she said was that a lot of the times the reason we don't tend to be successful in um, big goals in our lives is that we have an actual association with our personality that I am not the kind of person that does this. And it's very difficult to make that, you can't flick a switch to suddenly decide, I'm going to be a good language learner today. And it's the same for many other things. You can't flick a switch to decide, I'm going to be the kind of person that has a healthy lifestyle. What you can do is you can do a tiny bit by tiny bit and decide, okay, maybe I'm not a great language learner, but I can decide I'm going to learn one new vocabulary uh, term today. And you can take pride in that. And then the next day you could do a little bit extra. And it's not something that dramatically changes overnight, but it is something that eases your personality into the kind of person who can be a language learner. So you're kind of messing with the, uh, like she mentioned, the neurology that there are links in your brain that are kind of burnt in to you and your personality not being associated with this. And you cannot overnight change that, but you can move it in the direction to make you the kind of person who is successful at this new thing you want to do in life. As long as every single day you make an achievable way towards that goal. So um, I really like that. And then uh, another thing she said that I really liked was that uh, she appreciated my speak from day one approach as a um, one of the advantages is that more emotional eye contact that you make, that you get a, a certain dopamine kick from it. And I didn't even think about that, that it is uh, a huge advantage that when we tend to learn languages in non-spoken situations, you're exposed to the book, you're listening to things which have their own advantages, but you completely lose that personal connection. So you don't get the same dopamine kick you do, even if it's a video call, just that that eye contact with an actual human. And you have to work through your nerves to get through there, but you can indeed push through. And uh, I like that explanation that you're actually getting the dopamine kick from true human contact, which is another advantage of Speak From Day One. What about you? Did you have any big takeaways yourself? I think my big takeaway was similar to your first one. And it's that we're taught to develop our passions based out of the things that we're good at. And it it can create a lot of missed opportunity because your greatest passion could be something that you actually had to work at and really earn. Um, and this is something that I've seen a lot in music uh, where there's this belief that there's a lot of importance in natural talent. Whereas I found in my personal experience that hard walk hard work surpasses natural talent a hundred percent of the time, because with natural talent, what ends up happening is 
that person gets lazy. They're like, oh, I'm good at this. I don't have to work on it. And so they just assume that they're just going to continue to be naturally talented. Whereas the people who put in the consistent work day to day actually end up being better than those with natural talent. Um, that's not to say that if you have natural talent and you put the work in that you're not going to be great because you can, but it, there's just this fallacy that if you don't have a talent for something naturally, that you're never going to succeed at it. And that's not true. Consistent work out ways natural talent a hundred percent of the time if you're putting that work in and and really aiming for something and i think um just this getting rid of the idea that you have to be talented at something to be passionate about it and really pursue it um so that was my biggest takeaway all right. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can let us know what you think over at languagehacking.com slash review. We love hearing from you and your reviews let us know what you enjoy most about the podcast so we can keep doing more of it. And once again, you can listen to the extra questions and get access to loads of bonus content over at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. Thank you for listening. And until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.